At Mars Hill, Paul is flexible without compromising what is really important. Jesus was that way too. That Jesus resides in us today. Our old enemy wants to make us rigid. He understands rules and would make them into our idols, cruelly turning away the sinner for violating them. But Jesus has put in our hearts his great love, which let him get his hands dirty with the messiness of our humanity. Hello, this is Pastor John Edding. Thank you for listening to the Sand Hills Lutheran Ministry Podcast. This is the fifth sermon in the sermon series from the book of Acts called, I See Jesus. I did not record this sermon during a church service because I was on vacation that Sunday along with my wife. Uh, We enjoyed visiting our children and grandchildren. This sermon is a somewhat expanded version of the sermon that was read in one of our churches in the Sand Hill Sand Hills Lutheran Ministry on May 14th, I added some additional thoughts as the canoeing the mountains metaphor percolated in my thoughts and heart during uh, my vacation. I have to admit, I have sometimes thought after I have given a sermon, oh, I should have said this, or I wish I made this point. Well, this post-service recording gave me an opportunity to make some additional thoughts and finishing touches, which added a, a few minutes to the average run time. So I hope that you are blessed, equipped, and encouraged by the hearing. And so with that rather long-winded introduction behind us, let's get to today's sermon from Acts 17, verses 16 through 31, entitled, Flexible. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It was 15 months into one of the most iconic journeys in American history. Lewis and Clark, along with their team, were about to crest the highest point they had ever encountered thus far. Having been commissioned by Thomas Jefferson to chart a path to the Pacific Ocean for the sake of transcontinental travel, and especially for the sake of expanding commerce, Lewis and Clark were anxious for what they were to behold the next morning. They expected to see a brief descent down a gentle plain before reaching the Pacific Ocean. So under the stars of their own illumining excitement, they could barely sleep. No one had ever journeyed this far. No one had ever seen what they were about to behold, at least no Americans that day. This was an historic moment, if there ever was one. As morning dawned and the sunrise basked the landscape in a gentle glow, they ascended the final rise with an energetic quickness that their pace had not achieved since setting off all those months ago. They reached the crest and took in the view, and it was indeed as awe-inspiring as they had expected. And it was as simultaneously as one of the travelers recorded one of the most terrifying views that he had ever witnessed. For there was no gentle slope down to the Pacific Ocean. Instead, the rolling plain stretched only a short distance before ascending steeply and terrifyingly. What they had witnessed for the first time as 
seasoned adventurers were mountains they never dreamed encountering. When they had departed, they assumed that their journey across the continent would be very much like the plains and gentle rises that lay behind them. The only mountains that they had ever navigated were the undaunting Appalachians. But now before them lay a situation for which they never knew they needed to prepare. Trained to navigate waterways and tolerate the occasional needs for portage of their canoes, now they had massive adjustments to make. They would leave the canoes behind and find guidance and help from the Native Americans. They would later build new canoes from burnt trees, but ultimately they would be making it up as they go, negotiating new circumstances they never expected. These adventurers had to learn to, as Todd Bolsinger puts it, how to canoe the mountains. Paul's situation is similar to those American adventurers who had to learn how to canoe the mountains. Like Lewis and Clark, perhaps Paul thought that the way it was, was the way it would always be. He was zealous for God. He persecuted the Christians because he thought that they opposed God. Remember that a young man called Saul, the name by which Paul was known at the time, was there the day when Stephen was stoned. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. But Saul's world changed that fateful day as recorded in Acts 9 when Jesus knocked him off his horse and asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice that Jesus did not say, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? By the way, this is where we get the idea for our sermon series, I See Jesus. Jesus is present in his people. He identifies with and abides with his people. Now Saul's Lord graciously forgave him, and then he was baptized. Then he would take on his assignment to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's world had changed dramatically. This certainly was not what he had expected to do with his life. At first he must have felt, I am not prepared to do this. I am not trained to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But he would learn how to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He would learn how to canoe the mountains, or in our reading today, he canoes a hill. (laughs) This hill is called Mars Hill. Paul is invited to present on Mars Hill, or in Greek, the Areopagus. And he preaches a sermon for the gathered philosophers and intellectuals. Where would this be today? Would he be on some late-night talk show, perhaps on Bill Mayer's offering? Would he be given, would he be give, giving a TED Talk? Is it some academic symposium or conference. It is notable that Paul got asked to be there. This sermon, however, wants to note what Paul said and what he did not say. Paul never thought that his Christianity meant he had left Judaism. 
He still considered himself a genuine son of Abraham and follower of the Torah, and that meant he was vehemently monotheistic. Jewish martyrdoms were frequently centered around monotheism. They were willing to die for this. There is only one God. For Jewish people, idolatry is the big problem. You hear Paul reiterate this in several of his letters. He puts together a list of great sins in Colossians, and in the end of that he says that all such things are really idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5. You get the sense that that it is the worst label he could attach to those things. Even more telling is that in his letter to the Romans, Paul attributes all the wickedness of mankind to the fact that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Romans 2 verse 23. Paul is not soft on idolatry. It must have been painful for him to walk up to this hill through all these temples dedicated to idols. You can tell from the sermon that this is on his mind. In this instance, however, Paul does not make a frontal assault on idolatry. He only mentions it as a lever to get those gathered to think about the true God and his son Jesus Christ. In this way, he shows flexibility with his audience. Paul, who is in full persuasion mode, focuses on the things that matters. Now, these points are non-negotiable for him. There are three essential points that he makes in his speech. One, uh, or first, there is one God, verses 24 through 25. Secondly, we are responsible to him, so now is the time to repent and believe in him, verses 26 through 30. Third, now is the time to repent because God's Son, Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, will come again to judge the living and the dead. Verse 31. The great minds of the age were there listening. Some believed, others did not. This is the way of the kingdom of God. The Spirit does not force, but calls. But his calling is with power and persuasion. And Paul is very creatively and edgily proclaiming the gospel. For a first century Jew whose faith was built on the pillar of monotheism, this was a stretch. He grabs hold of an unknown God and tells them who that is. He does not rail against their idols or mock them for their beliefs. He adapts to this place. He does not speak an untruth but speaks the truth in a way that his audience can hear it. He is flexible without compromising what is really important. Come to think about it, Jesus was that way too. He knew that the Sabbath laws were there to help people, not the other way around. He was willing to eat with sinners and see even a Canaanite or Samaritan as a beloved daughter of God. When the lepers or the unclean approached him, he did not rebuke or upbraid them. He cared for the person, 
that made him flexible. He put love, God's holy love for his creation, above all other principles. He did not tolerate sin or think that immorality was good. He said, go and sin no more. But he did not reject the sinner because of their sin. He was able to talk to anyone. That Jesus resides in us today. For 21st century Christians, our situation is similar to the journey of Lewis and Clark. It's been over 1,700 years since we have lived in a culture when Christians were not, or Christianity uh, was not the dominant religion. The church during the post-war, World War II, North America, was a central part of the culture. No more. Being the church during that era was like journeying over the gentle rolling plains, but no more. No more. We are now trying to figure out how to canoe the rocky mountains of culture. We live during times that are more similar to the time of Paul and of the early church than we did only 70 years ago. Like Lewis and Clark, perhaps we thought that the way it was was the way it would always be. Like them and like Paul, we might think, I, I have not been trained for times such as these. I feel unprepared. It is a scary proposal. But take heart. Take courage. That same Jesus who resided in Paul resides in us today. Our old enemy wants to make us rigid. He understands rules and would make them into our idols, cruelly turning away the sinner for violating them. But Jesus has put in our hearts his great love, which let him get his hands dirty with the messiness of our humanity. We are attracted to power solutions as human beings. We tend to like to solve our problems with the application of pressure. And if it is not working, we are apt to apply more pressure. But pressure is not always the best tactic. Uh, quite often, pressure simply raises the resistance. It is not the force of the law which will change anyone or anything. But the gospel, gentle and merciful, which changes people. Grace, not judgment, is God's way. John 3, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In the reading for today, Paul finds himself among the idols of Athens, which were many. Being a pious and rabbinically trained Jewish theologian, Luke tells us that he was provoked within him. Now, Jewish people had fought and died to keep their monotheism. It was one of the bedrock principles of Paul's life. But he does not preach against the idols so much as he invites them to see the world with new eyes. He does not compromise what he believes. But Paul finds a way to proclaim Jesus, who calls people out of darkness and into light. Think about the people that you know in your life? How many people do you know that don't believe in Jesus? 
How many people do you know do not attend church regularly, or not at all? You probably don't have to go any further than your own family. And we all have neighbors who neither go to church nor who are affiliated with any religion. I am sure that those old explorers who were canoeing the mountains felt that they were unprepared for what they had to do and felt way outside of their comfort zone. But those explorers demonstrated a can-do spirit. They had the proper perspective. We will figure it out as we go. Christians are a can-do people. Just look at Paul. And we have the same Holy Spirit to give us the proper perspective when sharing Christ with our family and neighbors. What is the proper perspective in canoeing the mountains of our contemporary culture with the gospel? Well, consider the old tale of two shoe salesmen assigned to a new marketing territory. When the two arrived, they were faced with an interesting, for shoe salesmen, dilemma. No one was wearing shoes. The first salesman immediately contacted his supervisor with a frantic plea. Get me out of here. Not a single person here is even wearing shoes. The second salesman also made an, an immediate call to the supervisor, excitedly shouting into the phone, Send me everything you've got. Every single person here needs shoes. As you are shooting the rapids of 21st century culture in the canoe of the church with whirlpools and sharp rocks threatening to hurt you, it is easy to panic and check out. Get me out of here. But we can aspire to the joyful and confident attitude of the second salesman who probably was having fun. Canoeing the mountains can be fun and exhilarating also. We can pray to God, send me everything you've got. Every single person here needs shoes. Everybody here needs Jesus. There are two errors to avoid while canoeing the mountain. The first error is to not throw out the life ring to those who are floundering and drowning in the river. Every single person that God puts in our lives needs their Savior. And like on Mars Hill, not all will respond favorably, but some will. Remember that the Spirit does not force, but calls. But His calling is with power and persuasion. Our perspective and positive attitude as to how we view engaging those around us with the love of Christ makes a huge difference in how we approach this. We have an amazing opportunity to share the healing, forgiveness, and love of Christ in these uncharted waters that we find ourselves navigating together. The second error to avoid while canoeing the mountains is shipwreck. Shipwrecking the canoe on the shoals of compromise. There is a place for compromising or seeking the best solution in church. Uh, these areas of profitable compromise would be in areas that don't really matter in comparison to the life and death matters of salvation. What is an example of something that doesn't matter so much? 
Well, one pastor told a congregation, his congregation, struggling with a conflict over choosing the color of the church's carpet, um, he got them through the conflict by getting both sides to say aloud, remember, it is only a carpet. It is only a carpet. In other words, it doesn't really matter. Well, what matters then? Well, in terms of Christian teaching, what is absolutely necessary is hearing the word of God. And of course, this is what Paul is sharing to the, to the Gentile Greeks on Mars Hill. I have already summed up uh, his, the content, the essential content of that word of God in Paul's message earlier. And of course, the gospel in a nutshell, John 3.16, is another good example of what matters in the content of the word of God. And remember, the historical church has been canoeing the gentle hills and steep mountains long before us 21st century canoeists. Uh, through experience and lessons learned, they developed summaries of the content of the Word of God called the creeds, such as the Nicene Creed. And if you want to know a summary of what matters in the Word of God, then read and confess the Nicene Creed. Paul's sermon on Mars Hill follows the outline of the Nicene Creed. Check it out. We have much to learn from those ancient Christians who canoed the mountains and much to risk if we ignore their experiences and hard-won lessons learned on what matters. In terms of practice, what matters is answering the question, what pushes Jesus? This was Martin Luther's principle. His overriding question was always, what pushed Christ? If in this or that practice one met Christ, then he was good with it. That is why he kept the images and the art in the worship of the church. When other Protestant churches were smashing the stained glass windows and the images and the artworks were carried out into the streets to be burned. The Lutheran, uh, the Lutheran church worldwide uh, today enjoys flexibility uh, when it comes to polity. Uh, consider the hierarchical uh, Swedish and Finnish Lutheran churches with bishops versus the more autonomous congregational model in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And worship styles. Consider the, the highly liturgical Lutheran churches versus those Lutheran churches who relish in singing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. If the people of that parish meet Christ, we are good with it. We do not need uniformity except in the Christ we preach. We can have fierce opinions about which worship style or polity is best for proclaiming Christ, but we dare not obscure his face in making those arguments. Throwing a brother or sister overboard the canoe in order to be right about something which is a tool rather than the end of our theology. Uh, here's the main point. The church's task while canoeing the mountains of culture is to prayerfully discern what matters and what does not. So we paddle our canoe together in unison to the chant, What pushes Christ? What pushes Christ? What pushes Christ? Let's make that our guiding principle while canoeing. Do we feel daunted by the challenge and do we feel unprepared? 
Well, of course we feel daunted because we are canoeing in the mountains. We will be stretched. But remember that we do not canoe alone. We do this together as the church in this place and time. We are in the same boat, and Jesus is with us and in us. The Holy Spirit will help you to discern what truly matters in those opportunities that you have to share the hope that is within you. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.